For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Romans chapter 9 is a very important chapter um, theologically. You know, we've been studying this letter from Paul to the Romans. He's, he's really reached the end of a major section in this book. Chapters 1 through 8, he's talked about the, the power of the gospel, the good news of salvation for all who believe. He's talked about why we all need it, the universal human guilt. He's talked about um, what it means for God to make us right with him and our standing before him. And he's also talked about spiritual growth what it means for God to change us in our daily lives, our daily actions, so we're, how, we, how we are now more matches the character of Christ. And uh, Romans chapter nine, we get into a very important chapter. This chapter is very important in a uh, theological system known as Calvinism. Um, what Calvinism teaches is that before God created anything, God is the creator of all, before he created any people, anything, he made some choices. He chose to create some people who are chosen or predestined for eternal life. And his choosing of people is so strong that they cannot resist his call for salvation. God also, everybody else that he created, is chosen or predestined for eternal judgment. And these people cannot respond to God's offer of salvation. So some cannot resist his call of salvation. Others cannot respond to his offer of salvation. You know, for example, in the Westminster Catechism, it says, from all eternity, God has for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatever comes to pass in time. So he set it all ahead of time. It is unchangeable, and God has set that. John Piper writes about this passage. He's a very famous Calvinist. Um, one of the most famous, uh, really, um, I like a lot of his stuff, but I don't agree with him on Calvinism. Um, but he talks about his own struggle grappling with the notion of free will, and uh, he finally says, you know, what I finally concluded is Romans 9 is like a tiger going around devouring free willers like me. My worldview simply could not stand against the scriptures, especially Romans 9. He felt very convinced of Calvinism after reading and studying Romans chapter 9. It's a very important passage uh, for this theological system. Um, it kind of touches on the larger issue of, of fatalism. Um, do we even have free will? We talked earlier in Romans how under naturalism, it's, it's really, you can't, it's hard to even see any basis for such a thing as free will. Some other world religions also are fatalistic. Everything is mapped out ahead of time for us. Really don't believe in free will. Well, let's look at Romans 9 as a Calvinist would interpret it. You know, Scripture tells us things we don't necessarily want to hear. We don't reject the biblical teaching, though, just because we don't like it. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We need to get in line with the way he thinks about things. But the question we need to ask is, what is Romans 9 really teaching? Well, let's read through this chapter, as a Calvinist would see it, and we'll consider their perspective. Are they right? Romans 9, verse 6 says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. And so um, he's referring here to Abraham who had two well-known sons. He actually had other sons as well, but the first was Ishmael. The second was Isaac. And what God says is that 
when uh, Abraham had these two kids, God picked Isaac and he rejected Ishmael. He says, through Isaac, your descendants will be named Abraham. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And that son was Isaac. And God picked Isaac and God rejected Ishmael before Isaac was even conceived. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also. This is Isaac's wife, Rebecca, the next generation after Abraham. She had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. And although the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Rebecca gets pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau, and it says the twins were not even yet born, and God was already saying, I hate that one, and I love that one. That one's going to heaven, that one's going to hell. And that's why I've created these two babies. And he says, it's not because of works. It wasn't, like I, it wasn't like Jacob did anything good to earn salvation. It wasn't like Jacob even was able to exercise faith at that point because he was still in his mother's womb. No, it was the call of God, the irresistible call of God that caused Jacob to go to heaven and Esau to go to hell. Yes, they were still in the womb. God hated that baby. He loved that baby. That doesn't seem fair. Oh, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. Yeah, God doesn't have to have mercy on anybody. You know, if I walked around here and I just handed a $100 bill to somebody in the front row and didn't give one to anybody else, that's not unfair. That's merciful. That's me just handing out good gifts. That's what God does. You know, the whole human race turned against God. We all deserve, we, Paul's already made the point, all deserve eternal judgment, you know? And if God wants to reach out and just grab somebody off the conveyor belt to hell, he's allowed to do that. Just like, you know, he says, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Who are we to get mad at God for having compassion on anyone, for having mercy on anyone? It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Yeah, it's not about your own will, no, human choice plays no part in who receives God's mercy and compassion. God was very clear with Moses about that. Speaking of Moses, the scripture says to Pharaoh, remember the king of Egypt? Remember the 10 plagues? Perhaps you've seen some of the different movies that have been made about this. God sent Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and Pharaoh resisted God. Why was that? Well, Scripture tell us, tells us. God says to Pharaoh, for the very this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Pharaoh, the reason you were created is because I needed someone to lead the most powerful nation in the world and stand against God just so people could see how powerful God really was. That is your purpose in life, Pharaoh. Pharaoh couldn't have responded to God even if he wanted to because God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Yes, God was repeatedly hardening Pharaoh. Pharaoh never had a chance to respond to God because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Poor Pharaoh. 
The reason God created him was to demonstrate the power of God over arrogant, sinful mankind. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? He anticipates your objection. You're like, wait, how can God judge somebody if God was the one who, who hardened him? And Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Don't you dare try to blame God for this. When does the pot get mad at the pot maker for the kind of pot that he made him to be? <laughs> Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay? to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Yeah, maybe God wants to make this one be like a nice piece of china and this one is gonna be a toilet over here. <laughs> it's like the pottery lottery. <laughs> Which one are you? I guess we'll find out. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, Endured with much patience vessels of wrath, vessels of judgment, prepared for destruction. And he did so to make the riches of his glory, make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Yes, God makes some people for heaven, other people for hell, and there's nothing they can do to change their destiny. Romans chapter 9. There you have it from the Calvinist perspective. Well, I don't agree with that interpretation, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> I've got some problems with that. One is it doesn't fit with a lot of other passages in Scripture. That's one of the things about the Bible is, is Scripture has, even though it has many authors with a lowercase a, there's really one author with a capital A that stands behind it all. And he's not gonna contradict himself, you know, he's not gonna say something in this chapter that directly contradicts something he says in the next chapter. And so there's a lot of passages in scripture that I just don't see fitting with the Calvinist reading there of Romans 9. Like what Paul says in the very next chapter. He's quoting God who says, all day long I opened my arms to them, but they were rebellious, disobedient and rebellious. So on the hand, God is saying, please come to me, my people, I'm opening my arms to you. Well, what does that mean? if God is not letting them come to him. It's almost like with one arm he's, he's giving them the stiff arm, the other arm he's opening his arm to them. That seems to contradict that reading that we just had. It seems disingenuous, disingenuous emotion too from God. He's longing for his people to come to him, but he's not letting them come to him. Second Peter says, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Again, we see the longing of God, the patience of God, that God is gonna err on the side of patience. That's the kind of God that he is. And he wants, he doesn't want any, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants people to come to him. Yes, Proverbs, there's so many passages I could list here. We just don't have time. I could list hundreds, literally. Do not, he says, do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. He seems to set two ways before people. And he says, don't choose that way. He's acting like people have free will. He's acting like they can choose this and not that. The Bible has a very strong teaching on free will as I read it. You know, it, it's not that God can't control all of our choices. I think he could do that. What, what, 
my problem is that God has said he, he's gonna give people some free will. That's the way, that's, that's something he's chosen to, to bestow on human beings made in his image. And, and verses like this, so many verses like this teach that. Anytime God calls on his people for something, he seems to imply that they have the choice to do it or to not do it. What about Jesus' lament? He says, oh, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together and you were unwilling. I wanted you to come to me. You see these divine laments that people are rejecting God. And again, that emotion just seems very disingenuous. If it's not that you were unwilling, but that God, it's, it's like, it was, it's God's own unwillingness that's keeping people from coming to them. So I, I just don't see it fitting with so many other passages. I also don't think it fits the context of this. I'd like to read back through this again and take another shot at this, Romans 9. But this time, let's start in verse 1, where we left off last time. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. You know, on the one hand, he's just come, you know, he's soaring on the heights of the love of God and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Romans 8. And then he immediately says, and I'm so sad. I'm so sad. What is Paul so sad about here? He's sad. He says, I wish that I were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, that is, the Israelites. Paul looks out, and this is, he's, you know, 20, he's over 20 years into his ministry here. And what he has seen over his lifetime is he's seen increasing hostility from the nation of Israel, from the Jews, rejecting their own Messiah. Paul loves his fellow Israelites. He's heartbroken to see most of them rejecting their own Messiah. And he says, man, I would, if I could be accursed, if that would bring them in, of course it wouldn't do any good if Paul gave up his own salvation. That wouldn't, that wouldn't bring more people in. And in fact, this longing that he has, this really matches the heart of God. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus Christ did. He took on the curse on the cross. He hung, he hung there on the cross. He took the curse, he took the judgment so that people may come to know God. They may receive that forgiveness. And so Christ has already done this. He's already become accursed. And Paul feels that same longing for his fellow Jews to come to Christ. And yet it was becoming more and more clear at this point that the church was majority Gentile, non-Jewish, and that the Jews were increasingly hardening in their resolve against this gospel. He says, the Israelites, what's so special about them? Well, to them belongs the adoption of sons. Paul adopt, God adopted this nation back in the book of Exodus. And he said, you are my people, my chosen son. He, he took Father Abraham and he made a promise. He said, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. He's got all these covenants, the glory, the giving of the law. He gave them the word of God. He gave them the temple and all the rituals and all the priests. He gave them all of these promises. These are the, to the Jews belong the, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. 
And from them is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all. Christ came from the Jewish nation, from the tribe of Judah. May God be blessed forever, amen. He says they've had so much given to them by God, so much light, so much truth, and yet they're rejecting. They're rejecting Christ. Yeah, in the Old Testament, God chose the nation of Israel for a mission and he made a lot of promises to them. And now, God is entering a new phase in his plan. He is temporarily setting aside the nation of Israel and he's building what he calls a church, a new community of people from all nations. Of course, Jews can still get into the church, but they get in through faith, not through birth. And so God is doing a new thing now. He isn't gonna abandon the Jews or break any of his promises to them. It's not that the word of God has failed, as Paul put it there just a couple verses ago. God is not abandoning the Jews. He's not breaking his promises to them. But if God chooses to work through the church instead of Israel for now, he's allowed to do that. Some of his readers would have been like, what? Paul's like, yeah, God's allowed to do that. And so what is Romans 9 about? Is Romans 9 about God choosing individuals for salvation? No. What is it about? It's about nations. It's about God choosing nations for a role in his plan. And we're gonna, we're gonna read through the rest of this chapter and look at the scriptures that Paul cites and we're gonna see as he cites these different scriptures, it's not about individuals being chosen for salvation. It's about nations, mainly Israel, being chosen for a role in God's plan. And so we need to read this not through the lens of the individual but through the lens of nations. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all are Israel who descended from Israel. We see he's talking about nations. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. This is what he told Abraham. Remember, Abraham had many children. He picked Isaac. But what did he pick Isaac for? Let's read the whole verse, Genesis 21, 12, and 13. He, he says, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, but I'll also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son. So the context, the, this verse, what this verse is talking about is he's talking about nations. And what he's saying here is I'm gonna pick the Israelites over the Ishmaelites. He says, yes, I'm gonna make Ishmael into a great nation. 12 princes are gonna come from him, but Isaac is the one. Isaac is the line of promise. He is the one, the chosen one, the Messiah will come from. He had to pick one of them. If the Messiah is gonna be born with a certain ethnicity, he had to pick one and he picked Isaac's lineage. And so he picked the Israelites over the Ishmaelites. He says, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Remember, Isaac was the child of promise. We saw that in Romans 4. Ishmael was the one that he made through human works. Isaac was the child of promise. For this is the word of promise. At the time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So why did Israel get to play such an important role in God's plan? Was it because of how righteous they were? Was it because of how righteous their forefathers were? Or was it simply because of God's grace? Yes, there were teachings going around even in in Paul's day that God picked Israel because of the righteousness of their ancestors, the righteousness of the forefathers. And Paul's like, no, 
It wasn't because we were so awesome. God just picked us. And he says that repeatedly. He says, I didn't set my love on you because you were the biggest nation or the greatest or the most righteous or anything like that. He says, no, I just picked you because I decided to, because I made a promise to. He says, not only this, but there was Rebecca, Isaac's wife, when she had conceived twins by one man. That's typically how twins work. Um, our father, Isaac. <laughs> Though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Okay, so he picks Jacob over Esau. He says the older will serve the younger. Let's look at this verse. What does he say? What is the prophecy in Genesis 25? Rebecca, she feels the kids inside of her struggling and she doesn't know why this is happening. And she asks God, what's happening, God? Is this just like a, is this the way the second trimester always is? <laughs> and God says, no. <laughs> No, he says, actually, here's the problem. Two nations are in your womb. And she's like, what? <laughs> I thought I was just having twins. <laughs> Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. And so this prophecy is not about the individuals, Jacob or Esau. It's not the God picked Jacob to go to heaven and Esau to go to hell. No, he says it's nations. He's talking about the nations that will come from the two boys in her womb. It's two nations, it's two peoples. The older will serve the younger. That never happened in the lifetimes of Jacob and Esau. We see Jacob running away from Esau who was gonna kill him. We see him come back 20 years later groveling, just hoping Esau doesn't kill him. And then they part ways and they're just, they live separate lives. No, this promise here about the older will serve the younger is really about God picking the Israelites over the descendants of Esau, otherwise known as the Edomites. So again, we see a case where God picks, this, picks the nation of Israel for a particular task. He's got a mission for them. I mean, the Edomites, God gave them some land. He made them a nation. They, they made it like 1,500 years before they got wiped out. That's pretty good. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, this is interesting. This isn't a cl very clear when you read Romans 9. But Romans 9, 12, the older will serve the younger. That's from the first book in our Bible, about 2000 BC. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's from the last book in the Old Testament, about 400 BC. And so Malachi 1 this prophecy is given 1,500 years. This, this, this word from the Lord is given 1,500 years after Genesis 25. And what does God say? So this is, this is looking back. I have loved you, says the Lord, to Israel. How have you loved us? The people were asking. Very ungrateful generation. God says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau... I have hated and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland I've left his inheritance to the desert jackals Edom may say though we have been crushed we will rebuild the ruins 
but this is what the Lord Almighty said, they may build, but I will demolish. So he's clearly not talking about the boys, Jacob and Esau. This is him saying, you're saying I didn't love you. Look, I've given you guys this great nation, and Esau, I, I took him out. I took out his nation. Keep in mind, too, that hate, when he says I, I loved and hated, hate was sometimes a figure of speech meaning to love less. Like in Luke, in, Matthew, uh, in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother and your life and all of your possessions, you can't be my disciple. But then in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, anyone who loves his father or mother or his stuff more than me can't be my disciple. And so you can see, it's not that Jesus thinks we should hate our parents. He says you should love all people. You should honor your parents. No, he's saying, but by comparison to your love for me, it's, it's a loving less, this thing. And so God is saying, Esau and Edom didn't have it as good as you guys did, even though they still had it pretty good. Like I said, they're on land for like, like 14 or 1,500 years. The point, the point, though, of this whole section so far is that God chose Isaac's and Jacob's descendants before they were born, so it couldn't be because they deserved it. This was God's choice to work through the nation of Israel. And that's all the passages he's citing before about nations. What shall we say? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. Have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. What is he talking about here? Well, this is Exodus 33, 19 and 20, is this passage here. Is Exodus 33, 19 referring to Moses' personal salvation? Is that what he's talking about here with Moses? And the answer is no. This is not him saying, I've chosen Moses for heaven. No, what's happening in Exodus? In Exodus 32, Israel sins so bad that God tells Moses he's gonna set Israel aside and make a new nation through Moses. Basically, God is gonna break with Israel and do a new thing. And so Moses pleads with God. He asks him to spare Israel. He, he says what Paul said earlier in Romans 9. Look, I would be, cut, wipe me out, Lord, if, if it means you'll spare Israel. Paul's probably got that in mind as he's writing this. He says, God, please spare the nation of Israel. Please, God, make your presence visible among the nation of Israel. And show me too. Your, show me your glory. And so God, here in Exodus 32 and 33, he says, okay, Moses, I will. I will do that. Moses is sort of like a, it's sort of a picture of what Christ would one day do. What he's doing here, he's interceding on behalf of the people. And so God agrees as an act of sheer mercy. But he wants to make sure Moses knows <clears throat> this is just purely by my mercy and my compassion that I'm doing this. I don't have to do this. I'm just deciding to do this. And so we see the point here is that God spared Israel. God stuck with Israel in the earliest times, even though he could have and should have taken a new direction. And so God picked the Israelites over the Ishmaelites. He picked them over the Edomites. He spared them and stuck with them in the face of some pretty bad stuff that they did. What about this Pharaoh business? God says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Well, let's read this whole, let's read this whole passage as well. 
Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. What does God say to Pharaoh? This is in the middle of the plagues. This is right around plague number six. God says, you know, Pharaoh, by now I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. You and your people. You and the nation of Egypt. I could have completely wiped you guys out. But I've spared you for a purpose. To show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. And so God, what is he saying here? He's saying, he's, it's saying he spared Pharaoh in Egypt. He says the reason you're still around, I could have, I could have I'm so powerful, I could have wiped you out long ago and the nation of, of Egypt. And I should have, you guys are guilty. But I've spared you, I've left you standing here so I can show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the whole earth. And what we see is that later on in the Exodus, Exodus narratives, many Egyptians join up with Israel as worshipers of Yahweh. What we also see is that after they leave Egypt, many other nations hear about this power encounter between God and the most powerful man, the most powerful nation in the world, and we see others putting their faith in God, people like Rahab, for example, in Joshua 2, because of what God did here with Egypt. But really what this is about is God sparing Pharaoh, sparing the Egyptians, but it's also about, we see God hardens it says in verse 18, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. We need to talk about God's hardening of Pharaoh and the Egyptians because he hardens the Egyptians as well at one point. What is this talking about? Well, <clears throat> you gotta read the, the Exodus narratives carefully. If you read these carefully in, in plagues one through four, the only one doing any hardening is Pharaoh hardening his own heart. God begins to show him more and more miracles. He shows him more and more of his superiority. Some of Pharaoh's workers start coming to him and they're like, dude, you need to give in. But we see Pharaoh hardening his heart. And then in plague number five, God strengthens Pharaoh's heart. It's interesting, there's two words that are translated harden in our, most of our Bibles. But one of them is the word for strengthen. And if you read the, you know, 70 or so times this word is used in the Old Testament, it's translated strengthen everywhere except the book of Exodus, where it's translated harden. Perhaps a Calvinistic bias by some of our translators. But um, in Plague 5, God strengthens Pharaoh's heart. It's like God is giving Pharaoh the strength to do what he really wants to do after he's already hardened his heart many times. And then in, in the sixth plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart for the last time in that narrative. And then, for the only time, it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then for the remaining plagues and the crossing through the Red Sea, Pharaoh's not hardening his own heart anymore. God is strengthening Pharaoh's heart. God is giving Pharaoh the courage to do what he really wants to do. He's hardened his heart enough times and finally God says, okay, have it your way. And he begins strengthening the heart of Pharaoh, strengthening him to do things like, you know, when they come to the Red Sea and God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites walk through and the, the Egyptians are standing there looking at the walls of water, 
You know, it's not that they lacked the desire to go after the Israelites. Still, what they would have lacked there was the courage to get in there. And so it said God strengthened their hearts and they plunged in with walls of water standing on both sides after seeing all 10 of the plagues and the waters came crashing down on them. One message here is that it's dangerous to say no to God. That we can say no to God like Pharaoh did. And if we say no enough times, God is finally gonna say, okay, have it your way. It's interesting too, Hebrews 3.15 says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden his hearts. Every time we say no to God, it gets harder to hear his voice. We can become calloused. Our hearts can become hard. And eventually we can reach a point where we can't hear his voice anymore. And that's a very scary place to be in. And I think when we get to the, when we get to the final final day when we stand before God, we're gonna see just how much God pursued each person. And we're gonna see just how much people either responded to God or shut their eyes and said no to God. Jesus gives the example of light and darkness. And you know, it's like the more you shut your eyes to the light, the harder it becomes to open them again. It's like, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you stumble into the bathroom and you hit the wrong switch and it's like the spotlights hit you in the face. You're like, ah. Oh! It can be like that with God's truth. If we shut our eyes enough, it's it very hard to open our eyes to that light. What's interesting too is Romans 9 is part of a whole argument, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And look what he says in Romans 11. He says, now a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know, Israel, you know, Egypt had seen a lot of, God had shown them a lot of things. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians just kept saying, no, no, no. Many of the Egyptians did. And Paul's saying, you know, Israel's seen a lot. Jesus walked around there for three years. All the apostles, Jewish. The first proclamation of the gospel right there in Jerusalem. And so many are, are rejecting that what's happening, Paul says, is a partial hardening of the nation of Israel. And that's a hardening that will last until the end times. More on that next week. But part of what he's saying is Israel, you guys are starting to look kind of like Egypt here. That would have been pretty offensive to some of his Jewish readers. It should be noted too that some Egyptians did join up with Israel. This was not a complete hardening of, of Egypt. Some saw and they responded and they said yes. Yahweh is God and we want to follow him. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded won't say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Well, this right here is probably a reference to Jeremiah 18, a passage that would have been well known to them. And what is Jeremiah talking about with the potter and the clay in Jeremiah 18? Is he talking about God molding individuals for salvation or damnation? Jeremiah says, God told him to go to the potter's house. So he says, so I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working there at the wheel. So he had this wet lump of clay and the wheel is spinning and he's kind of molding this thing into something that he wanted it to be. But the pot he was shaping from the clay became marred in his hands. There was something wrong with it. 
So what does the potter do? Well, the clay's still wet. So the potter just formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. What is the meaning of this little parable? Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Oh, he's still talking about Israel, God's purposes for Israel, God's plans for the nation of Israel and part of the larger salvation history. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. Look, he says, I'm preparing a disaster for you and I'm devising a plan against you. He's talking about this future exile. He's gonna take them away to Babylon for 70 years and then he's gonna regather them in their land. What's interesting is Jesus, at the end of his life, he warned the nation of Israel, many of whom were rejecting him, he says, I wish you guys would have listened to me because the days are coming when Jerusalem is gonna fall to the Gentiles and Israel is, is not gonna be in control of Jerusalem. He's teaching the scattering of Israel. It's like, a, it's like another exile. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then he's gonna bring them back in someday. Bring them back into their land of physical restoration and then a spiritual restoration. And so Paul, you know, he's looking back to a previous time when God sent them out of their land and then brought them back in and he's saying, God has exiled Israel before and gone a different direction for a time. And don't think that he can't do it again. It's exactly what he's doing right now. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. All right, this one is pretty tricky. So you've got some vessels prepared for destruction, then you've got other vessels which he prepared beforehand for glory. Notice the difference. In one case, it clearly says God prepared them beforehand for glory. In the former case, though, it says just vessels prepared for destruction. What's clear is in the, in the latter case, God is preparing them beforehand. In the former, it just says vessels prepared. There's no subject for that verb. And the beforehand part is not there either. Prepared here, in verse 22, can be in Greek what's known as either the middle or the passive voice. All right, if it's the passive voice, it's just, it, it was prepared for destruction. The middle voice is something we don't really have in English. It's almost like a reflexive sort of thing. It would almost read, who prepared themselves for destruction. And the way, the way this verb is formed, the passive and the middle voice both look the same. So we have to look at the context to decide which one it is. I think middle voice would fit here, who prepared themselves for destruction. I think that would fit both with the notion of free will, I think that fits with what he was saying earlier about Pharaoh and, the, and, and many of the Egyptians. And I think, that fits, I think that fits with the doctrine of free will. Verse 23, what he's talking about here are the church and the people in the church. Vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Yeah, God has foreknowledge too. Scripture says that God does pick people according to his foreknowledge. And so he can know, he did know before the foundations of the world, the whole way your life would plan out. He knew you, he knew who you were. 
He knew where you would live. He knew the choices that you would make. And he could see the, the choices you would make that you would respond to his offer of forgiveness. And so what, what's, what God can say is that he, he chose you. He set your destiny ahead of time. Because, and it's according to his foreknowledge. It says in Romans 8, 29 and 1 Peter 1, 2. Verse 22, probably it may be Israelites that were unbelieving. Uh, this would be sort of maybe just talking about unbelievers in general. It's a little hard to say. Romans eleven eleven does say, by Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But he does say, it's even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So again, he's talking about the whole thing here. This new thing God is doing. Not just Jews now, but it's a mix of Jews and many, many other nations. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call her beloved. And so the potter's making a new pot here. He's making a new thing. And uh, that new thing is the church. This this new spiritual community. And I love this verse, 25, because he says, I will call those who are not my people, my people. You know, before God came and got me, I was a nobody. Her who is not beloved, beloved. I was a nobody. I had no one. I was destined for eternal aloneness. And God came and got me. And that's the story of every Christian. Was not God's, did not belong to anyone. And all of a sudden, you find yourself belonging to God. You were a nobody, and suddenly, you're a somebody. You, you too received the adoption as sons that we talked about last time. And so God is temporarily setting aside national Israel, and he's gonna work through spiritual Israel for now. And we're gonna learn more of the details of that next week in Romans 10 and 11. In conclusion here, God is sovereign, but our view of his sovereignty should be based on the, the biblical data, not on my gut feeling or on philosophical arguments. We need to learn what does the scriptures teach? I also think that some of the most godly Christians are Calvinists. This is not like a deal breaker. This is not something we would break fellowship over or anything like that. Some of the most effective Christian workers in the history of Christianity have been Calvinists. They have a boldness, a confidence that comes from their belief in God's sovereignty. And so um, I, I, I don't think this is as big of an issue as people make it out to be properly understood. The way I see it, Scripture teaches that God gives you enough freedom to hold you responsible. God is laying a choice before you. Are you willing to turn to him? Are you willing to respond to his offer of forgiveness? That's the choice that stands before some of us here tonight. You have the choice. Will you choose to respond and become one of the chosen ones? All right, well, that's probably enough for tonight. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, you want so much good for us. You're calling out to us, Lord. Um, it does require humbling ourselves, though, and that's pretty hard to do. I pray, Lord, that for each of us here today, if we can hear your voice, that we would not harden our hearts, Lord. I pray that we would encourage one another day by day so that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, God. 
I pray that we would learn to say yes to your will, say yes to you, Lord, and that we can experience, we can understand and experience what your will is for our lives, Lord, and that we would walk in that. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.